There's one subject I'm going to talk to you about today. It's going to be about the uh, Chattanooga power structure. You ever heard that term? Heard people talk about the power structure? It's really why I wrote my book, Old Money, New South, was really to sort of examine in a very long, flowing, meandering, fun, many-storytelling type way is uh, really to ask the question, is there a power structure? Who is the power structure? What do they do? Is it real? Is it not? Is it good? Is it bad? Um, that's what my whole book is about, so I'll tell you some stories that are probably in the book, anecdotes, facts, figures that are probably in the book, but I'm going to just kind of go from, from my head. It's been 10 years since I wrote the book, so I might not get everything exactly right. Um, but evidence for the fact that there is a power structure in Chattanooga, or I guess now you could say was, because there's, there's ebb and flow. It's probably a lot less than it was. Uh, but one great story is um, when there was a big push, appropriately, we're at the Bessie Smith Hall on what used to be 9th Street. Uh, there was a big push in Chattanooga in the late 70s to change the name of the street from 9th Street to ML King Boulevard, ML King Jr. Boulevard. Anybody remember that? Apparently it was a big deal. There was a lot of, a lot of people. It was kind of getting scary. Um, and uh, the big person who was saying no, don't want to make that change, was Tommy Lupton. Uh, now, I'm sure most of you here are familiar with the Lupton family, which is kind of revered, or at least was, because most of them are gone now, uh, was revered, revered as sort of the key family, the richest family, the top of the pyramid of the power structure of Chattanooga. They were three generations of Coca-Cola bottling, worth what, you know, today you could say billionaires, uh, worth a lot of money, made a lot more money on Coca-Cola than the people in Atlanta did. And uh, so, uh, Tommy Lupton, who was kind of the poor cousin, I think he was only worth about $100 million. And his cousin Jack, Jack Lupton, who was the very wealthy one. Anyway, Tommy Lupton said, don't want to change the name, because he was really the pioneer, to his credit, the first person to really take a risk and do something in downtown that was decaying and deteriorating, and nobody would take a risk down here, so he built the Talon Building and the Crystal Building. And he was taking a risk. He was laying out a lot of money for it. And he was concerned back then that if you change the name of the street, that investors and people who wanted to locate and have that building as their address would not want an address that said MLK Boulevard. He just wanted to stick with 9th Street. And uh, he wasn't, you know, he, you know, you can, you can hear the arguments, can't you? I'm, this isn't about race or anything. This is just about business. I just want to have, you know, uh, I want to, I want, I got to fill this building. So he, he would, he stopped it. And uh, and there was four city councilmen, uh, five city councilmen, sorry. And uh, it was, I can't remember now. I told you it's been ten years. It's either five zero or four one. I forget, but large majority were saying we're not going to change the name of the street. And it was getting worse and worse and there was big crowds and you're rioting and so Jack Lupton 
who <clears throat> was a big golfer, he built the honors course, one of the best courses in the world. He jetted over to uh, uh, Pebble Beach Country Club in uh, California, Northern California. What's that area called? Uh, starts with an M, Monterey. He was over in Monterey playing Pebble Beach, living the life. Pulls out a San Francisco newspaper or something, sees a headline from Chattanooga. Lupton says, do not change the name to Martin Luther King Boulevard. And uh, he was like, what? And uh, his name was being besmirched uh, because of his cousin. So Walter Williams, the African-American judge, told me this story. But he said, uh, he said, so Jack Lupton made a phone call. He said, one phone call. Called one of the city councilmen and said, change the name. And uh, the next day, they voted 5-0 to change the name to Martin Luther King Boulevard. So that is uh, one anecdote uh, that, where I would wage, you know, I would suggest to you that there is a power structure. There was a power structure. Uh, it had some influence. Uh, total, no. Significant, yes. Um, one of the many stories I heard, or, or one of the things I heard many times was the story about uh, Dr. James Fowle, who was the Presbyterian of the, uh, the pastor of the First Presbyterian Church, Keno Church. Used and he to be a member of this club. Used to be a member of this club. Well, he was a big charitable guy, so yeah. Um, well, the, they, I heard it from so many different people that I interviewed that he would gather all the rich guys in the room because they all went to his church. And he'd say, all right, boys, all the money's in this room. We got to raise, you know, today it'd be like twelve million dollars. We got to raise twelve million dollars. Who's going to give the biggest part? You know, and he'd just go through it, and he would, he'd raise the money right there, and then they they go, and so the project would be over. And uh, so that was the Chattanooga power structure. They'd get together, a few in a room, you know, figure it out, and then go on and do something else. Um, and then there's a lot of other stories, some not so benign that would suggest to you that Chattanooga did have a unique, unique power structure. <clears throat> but Chattanooga had unusual amount of wealth uh, for just a mid-sized city. We had, we had more foundational wealth uh, per capita than any other city in the country for, um, for uh, until like the last 15 years. We've had, we had more foundational money than Atlanta for many, many, we still might. Uh, Chattanooga, very unique, and you guys have probably heard this statistic, but uh, per capita, the largest uh, charitable giving, largest uh, percentage of giving to the United Way, uh, that was a big deal. Um, so a lot of, lot of interesting things about Chattanooga and its power structure. A lot of them aren't so benign, uh, but that gives you a sense. Okay. Um, Let's, uh, let's talk about arguments for why there might not be such a powerful power structure in Chattanooga. Because some think, yes, there is. Some think, no, not really. It doesn't work that way. Some, think it, some say it used to be pretty bad back in the day, but it's not as bad anymore, or not as good anymore, however you look at it. Um, <clears throat> I tend to go with that. I think it, it used to be a quite... Uh, quite a bit more significant back in the day. Um, but uh, 
Zach Womp tells a story. Uh, before I tell you that story, three or four of the sons of captains of industry uh, told me a story that confirmed what, when I used to say this in the Chattanooga Facts, I was labeled conspiracy theorist, oh, that's ridiculous. But uh, we would write and hearken unto the fact that one of the reasons Chattanooga did not grow as a city like it should have, like its counterparts, Atlanta, Birmingham, etc., is because the captains of industry did not want the city to grow because they didn't want to pay their workers higher wages. Um, because more people coming, you know, you uh, <clears throat> growth, the whole thing. So that was a, that was a conspiracy theory that was out there. Well. Several of the sons of those uh, captains told me that that was exactly the case. They'd have meetings in the boardrooms, and their fathers would say exactly that. And uh, when they got to be of age, <clears throat> who were they? Uh, I know Frank and Pat Brock were two of them that talked about it. And there was a couple more. I wish I could name one more. Um, but um, uh, they confirmed this. That this was the case. So when they got to be of age, <clears throat> they started switching hats and saying, we got to grow as a city, we've got to grow. And they started getting involved in this push that many of you all are aware of, the renaissance of Chattanooga and all that. I'm not going to get into all the details. That's a story that's been told a lot. Um, another, uh, so that's the story about how it was bad in the 40s, 50s, 30s, and, and the power structure didn't become quite as bad in the 60s, 70s, 80s. Another story that Zach Womp told me that I thought was a great story was um, he ran for Congress. He ran in 1992, I believe is the right date, before he got elected in 1994. His first race, he almost won, but somebody had a really great picture of him when he went to jail. And uh, so he didn't quite win the first time around, but he ran a heck of a race. He raised a lot of money, and he came very, very close. Well, he didn't know Jack Lipton. And he walked by him one day on the sidewalk right by the Mountain City Club. He knew who Jack Lupton was, and so it was right after this campaign, and he said, hello, Mr. Lupton. And uh, Jack Lupton said, uh, hi, Zach. He said, you did a good job. And that was it. And the next year around, he might have gotten some kind of nice gift from Jack Lupton since, since he knew him and, you know, at that point. But the point being, and, and, and Zach's point, which is, well, founded is that he won a seat in the United States Congress with no help from the power structure. So they don't control everything. They do have some influence, they do have some control, more control maybe than some uh, <coughs> gathering of elite private families in other cities, but they don't have total control. Now, <clears throat> I will tell you that the, uh, the conclusion of my book, it's not blatant, it's not light red lights flashing, but I, I sort of conclude in my book that overall Chattanooga is blessed to have a power structure. We're blessed to have many families of unusual wealth <clears throat> uh, for a lot of reasons. I'm a, I'm a card-carrying conservative, and I just think that whenever you have wealth in private hands rather than uh, government hands, that's probably always a good thing, so that's one good reason. Um, another reason is, uh, is because of how philanthropical and giving uh, those families have been, and I'm going to get to that a little bit more in a minute. Um, but uh, overall, it's been good. Has, is there a bad side? Sure, there's a bad side to everything. But uh, we're blessed to have these families. All right, let's take a little turn here, have some fun. 
So we've got our micro test Chattanooga on the question of is there a power structure and are they good or bad? So let's take that and let's talk a little bit about the world. Does the world have a power structure? And is it good or bad? What do you think? A lot of talk out there, right? About the elites, the Illuminati. What's the other word you get? I don't know. Um, what's that? Soros. George Soros. So yeah, and his buddies. Yeah, I mean, you know, so you know that that same same question globally, right? Like we've had it, the same question we had here in Chattanooga. So is there one? Uh, I'd say yes to some degree. Uh, so let's talk about that a little bit. Any evidence for a elite group of people that sort of uh, call the shots? Yeah, if you're looking at world gatherings, uh, the chief targets are the Bilderberg group, uh, the uh, uh, what's the uh, what's the group of Bohemian Grove over there in Northern California, San Francisco, and then there's one more, the Davos, I guess, is the, the kind of the big three meetings of this kind of stuff. Uh, so, but you know, hardcore document, documented, I don't be called evidence, but hearkening unto this idea, sure. Uh, anybody remember something interesting that uh, Dwight Eisenhower told us in 1960? He gave us that, his uh, farewell speech where he warned us about the military-industrial complex. I think I've got the quote here so I can find it. Quote, in the councils of government, we must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence, whether sought or unsought, by the military-industrial complex. The potential for the disastrous rise of misplaced power exists and will persist. So he, Ike told us back in 1962, 1960, that there was a power structure. It already existed, and it's going to persist. So, uh, yeah. All right. All right, here's an interesting story. I wish I could show you the video, um, but I got paper. A few days after September 11th, the video of this is maybe three years after September 11th, but... General Wesley Clark, four-star general who was uh, the head of the Supreme Commander of NATO at, at one point in the 90s, tells a story on videotape about how he was told right after 9-11 that they were going to go and invade Iraq. It's like, Iraq? What's Iraq got to do with anything? And uh, then he came back a few days later and he said, are, are we really going to invade Iraq? And the man he was talking to said, yes. And he said, uh, and I'll, let me read the quote here. <clears throat> he said, uh, so he picked up a piece of paper and he said, I just got this down from upstairs, meaning the Secretary of Defense. He said, um, he says, this is the memo that describes how we're going to take out seven countries in five years, starting with Iraq and then Syria, Lebanon, Libya, Somalia, Sudan, and finishing off Iran, he said. So, uh, and he goes on to talk about it some more. Well, a lot of that's already happened. And I think we were sort of told that the whole idea of invading Iraq was maybe a little bit more of a <laughs> grassroots, uh, uh, deliberative kind of thing before we actually did it two years later after 9-11. But here's four-star general, who was the supreme commander of NATO, telling us that it kind of works a little bit differently, maybe. 
So is there a power structure? Well, sounds like there's some evidence for it there. Uh, one more little anecdote for is there a global power structure. This is a fun one. It's a quote from David Rockefeller, who is now 101 years old. I just posted something on Facebook. He just got his seventh heart transplant. So uh, might be afraid to die. Um, <clears throat> this is what he wrote in his memoirs, his autobiography in 2002. David Rockefeller. Kind of a long quote, but stick with me because it's worth it, okay? For more than a century, ideological extremists at either end of the political spectrum have seized upon well-publicized incidents to attack the Rockefeller family for the inordinate influence they claim we wield over American political and economic institutions. Some even believe we are part of a secret cabal working against the best interests of the United States characterizing my family and me as internationalists and comparing and conspiring with others around the world to build a more integrated global political and economic structure. One world, if you will. If that's the charge, I stand guilty and I am proud of it. There you go. Right there in David Rockefeller's uh, autobiography. So is there a uh, power structure? I think there probably is. How much power do they have? I'm not exactly sure. I write a lot about it <coughs> online, and uh, I think a lot about it. Now I'm podcasting about it, but that's a whole other story. Um, so yes, global power structure, local power structure. Now, let's close this up by talking about what can make a power structure lean towards the good or towards the bad. And as I told you, I've sort of concluded in my book that Chattanooga's power structure was generally good and is good and has been good for Chattanooga. But why is that? Why is that? Well, there's a lot of reasons you could give. I'm going to give what I think is the main one, and because of time, I can't talk about other groups and influences. But uh, there's an exchange in my book where I'm talking to Scotty Probasco about this, and he's uh, <clears throat> Scotty Probasco is Jack Lupton's brother-in-law. I'm sure most of you in the room know who Scotty Brasco is. May he rest in peace. He passed, I think, just about a year ago. Uh, great guy. Scotty Pabasco, uh, I was asking him, well, how come Chattanooga is so philanthropic and so giving and all that kind of stuff? And he says, well, he says it's because we're the buckle of the Bible Belt. That's what I believe, and I'm sticking to it. So here's a guy who was often called the second most powerful guy in Chattanooga, Jack Lupton's brother-in-law. Um, who believed it was the Christian influence that caused Chattanooga to be so philanthropic. I've already told you the story about James Fowle, who's the pastor of First Presbyterian Church. First Presbyterian Church is kind of like, there's like First Presbyterian Church, and then way down here is like all the other churches in Chattanooga history. Uh, and like Chattanooga city government is like way below First Presbyterian Church in terms of influence. First Presbyterian Church is arguably, in my opinion, the most powerful institution in the history of the area known as Chattanooga. And for a hundred years, they had three, they only had three pastors. And uh, I, might have, I might not have those numbers exactly right. For a long period of time, many decades, they had three pastors who told all these billionaires in their church, the reason you exist is to give your money away. And I expect to see you giving your money away. They 
harped on giving, they harped on giving, they harped on philanthropy. And so this really, really rich church with a bunch of really, really rich people gave away a whole lot of money. Well, why did First Presbyterian have that influence? What caused that? It's one of my problems, you know, is I'm always asking why, 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 and I keep going back and keep going back. But it's, that's a good question. Why? Why was First Presbyterian? Why do all these pastors have this ethic? Well, the, the one who really laid the foundation for this kind of a mentality was the pastor of First Presbyterian Church during and after the Civil War. Reverend T.H. McCauley. You may have heard that name. He had a couple of sons that started a school. There was another school called Baylor that started out of his house. There was another school called GPS that his daughter started. Uh, the guy was involved in a lot of things starting in Chattanooga. A very godly man. And he really shined a light in Chattanooga that caused a lot of good things to happen. Uh, but I'll read to you uh, something. Uh, from my book. The Reverend Dr. Thomas Hook Macaulay led such a faithful regimen of family devotions, which included his two sons that founded Macaulay School, that it stuck for over a century. His great-grandson, Alan Macaulay, you may know Alan Macaulay, an attorney here in town, um, currently an attorney at the Miller Martin Law Firm, uh, told me their morning family devotions growing up were non-negotiable. But those later generations had it easy because Thomas Hook's dad required strict two-a-day sessions in the 1850s. So you got this Macaulay family in the 1850s. We're having family devotions twice a day, and it's non-negotiable. That's a nice little anecdote to let you know how serious uh, this family was in terms of living out their faith. They had quite an influence on the First Presbyterian Church, which had quite an influence on all the billionaire rich people, which had quite an influence on Chattanooga. Um, so, that's one of the reasons, I would say the main reason, that uh, Chattanooga's power structure has been more benign than, what would be the opposite word, malevolent. Um, a, a positive influence and not a negative influence. So what is, how does that bode for our world today? Well, there is a power structure. I think it's probably growing, not lessening, although with technology maybe there's some hope. But uh, I don't see the same God-fearing trend globally that uh, we, we saw here locally, so I'm a little concerned about that. So I think that's something we can pray about, and uh, I'll leave you with that. I, I'll, uh, uh, I'll read you one quote, which is a little disturbing. Um, but there's one world leader who's not real impressed with how we're doing in terms of fearing God. Uh, Vladimir Putin, the head of Russia. Here's a quote. Many Euro-Atlantic countries have moved away from their roots, including Christian values. Uh, policies are being pursued that place a faith in God and a belief in Satan on the same plane. 
this is the path to degradation. So there's one Christian uh, world leader who is uh, concerned about where we're headed. So all that to say, let's pray for our world, and then let's just be grateful and thankful for what has happened in Chattanooga and what a great city we have. So thank you for your time. It's great to be here. Please be advised, this will not be your last time to speak here. Oh, thank you. Can we take questions? Questions? Are there any questions? Yeah, One o'clock? Why, why are you here? Why am I here? Oh, why am I in Chattanooga? Oh, thank you for asking. Um, uh, I'm fifth generation Los Angeles. I think he said fifth generation Chattanooga, but I'm not. I'm fifth generation Los Angeles on both sides. Yeah, and oh, he did say LA? Okay, good. And of course, the Hollywood Bowl story, you heard that. Um, and my, uh, just to give you the transition, so, you know, then I've got these crazy liberal progressive great-grandparents, great you know, and all that, and then my parents went to UCLA, like I told you, and they were in the very, they, they found themselves, they didn't go to church or anything, they, they got, found themselves in the very first Campus Crusade for Christ group uh, that was ever formed, which became, if you all don't know, is the largest Christian ministry in the world now. And it was just a group of like 30, 40 kids. And so my parents gave their life to Christ. Their lives changed. My dad, uh, he was playing basketball for UCLA back then, believe it or not. And then he went on to uh, seminary, and he took a pastor in Roanoke, Virginia. And I grew up in Roanoke, Virginia. By the time I got to college age, my dad had become a PCA pastor, which is the Presbyterians that believe in God. And... Uh, um, <laughs> Just kidding. I'm going to get in trouble. I was doing so well until now. Why did I take questions? Um, the, uh, and, and so he became a PCA pastor, and Covenant College is the uh, denominational college for PCA, and so I found myself at Covenant College. Left for a little while after Covenant, but kind of have been here ever since, 35 years. So it's become my hometown, obviously. So here's the book, Old Money, New South. Uh, it's out of print. It's a great big thick old book. It took me five years to write. Uh, it was a labor of love and uh, was received quite well and sold, I guess, over 5,000 copies just in Chattanooga. Um, it's out of print, so I don't really sell them. Uh, if you go to Amazon, they charge like 125 and people actually buy them. Uh, I, this is a paperback. I've got two paperbacks that I'll sell for $50, and I've got two hardbacks that I'll sell for $100 each. So. If anybody is feeling that excited about this book, and apparently there are a lot of people who are, then uh, you can buy one of these. Why is it out of print? Because I ran out of money. Um, uh, that's a short version. You know, it really needs to be in print, and I'm, I'm glad you asked the question. Um, I'm, I'm being cheeky. Uh, we had a flood in our basement in, in uh, Belvoir, where my wife and I live, and uh, we, it was in the third reprint and we had the largest flood in 30 years, and all the books got destroyed. And insurance covers everything except what happens to you. Um, so, couldn't get the insurance for it, and so since then it's been out of print. It really ought to be in print, and I, I, I'm a really good starter and not so good of a finisher, and so I have an approach like local foundations or people like that who, ought, who, would, who would probably want to see it get into print, Costs about ten grand to get it in print and be self-perpetuating again. So if anybody wants to uh, make that one of your charities, uh, because it is a, it is a, it is under a nonprofit, um, the book is. So I th 
Okay. <laughs> but I thank you for the question. Um, and by the way, I wanted to, I forgot that when I first got up here, I just wanted to say I'm, uh, I'm just hearing a little bit, a bit about Civitans and what you guys do, and I'm extremely impressed. Uh, thank you uh, for what you're doing in the community. Uh, Jesus said if you do this to the least of these, the, the most vulnerable in our community, then you're doing it to me. Uh, I'm a very devout Christian, and I'm guessing that many people in this room are following out the commands of Jesus a lot better than I am. So I just want to commend you and thank you for what you're doing. Uh, more books. Um, this is, I've got one of these to sell. 1995. Um, get a nickel off. Um, America's Trail of Tears. Uh, this is about the Cherokee removal west. It's a fascinating saga about uh, three uh, chiefs here in the Chattanooga area that felt like they needed to sign a treaty with Andrew Jackson in order to save the tribe from being annihilated. And they felt like if they did that, they were probably going to get killed for it. They were all three killed in the same night, three months later. They said they did it for their people. And some people argue that this, this is why the Cherokees still exist today. Some people hate what they did. It's still a very, very passionate issue. So I got one of these. Uh, this is the uh, movie that uh, was mentioned. Uh, I've got several DVDs of this for $10, so I can sell a bunch of these. Uh, did the, this premiered at the Chattanooga IMAX Theater a year and a half ago. It's about my great-grandparents. They were um, radical socialists, advocates of free sex at the turn of the century in Hollywood. He was a doctor and uh, his wife. And uh, they were quite, quite the couple. Um, hung out with some of the most radical people of the 20th century, Clarence Darrow, Emma Goldman, Margaret Sanger, uh, and uh, their lives kind of spun out of control and kind of got bad at the end, and so for me it's a morality tale, um, but it's a fascinating story, and uh, feel free to get one of these. I got a bunch of these too, that's why I'm letting you know that you can I don't have too many books to sell because there are a lot of them are out of print, but this is a book I wrote for my mother, and uh, it's called The Liberation of a Resentful Wife, and she tells her story about uh, her, her marriage. Uh, who was the gentleman who spoke a minute ago, said he went to UCLA? Right there, yes. Uh, they went to, my parents went to UCLA about the same time you did, uh, mid-50s, early 50s, yeah. And so they talk about their story in this. Um, uh, my father was a preacher, was preaching to his congregation in Orlando, Florida, coming back from being a missionary. And he was 69 years old, and he was preaching on his favorite verse, for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. And right before the end of the sermon, he said, and when I go to heaven, and he had an instant heart attack and fell down and died. And it was international news. It was on Paul Harvey, CNN, the whole thing. It was crazy. Some of you might even remember the headline. Um, but uh, that story's told here. And lastly, I'm so glad that everybody associated me with the Chattanooga Facts because um, I spent 10 years doing that, and that was great fun, very interesting, all the news that was not fit to print. Um, and uh, one of my favorite little pieces that I've done over the years is a little cartoon book. It's a collection of many of the cartoons that were uh, done in the Chattanooga Facts. Um, my collaborator, my artist, was a famous, world-famous artist 
who's now deceased, so I could reveal his name because he would never reveal his name. But we were big buddies at the coffee shop. Gordon Wetmore. Anybody know who Gordon Wetmore is? He's a world-famous uh, portrait artist. He was the founder of the American Portrait Society. And uh, he, uh, he would only put uh, his initials on the cartoons. He says, he says, you know, people pay $50,000 for my signature. I'm not going to put it on your cartoon. Um, so, uh, but when we had a great time doing it. But I've got several of these books. I'll sell them for five bucks. So um, if you want one of these, cool thing to have. All right, that's it. See you guys next week. Woo! <laughs>